Hyde Park United Methodist in Tampa, Florida, this is the Bible Project 2020, a journey to reading the Bible without fear or frustration. I'm your host, Matt Hotho. This week, we are joined by the Reverend McGray DeVega, Senior Pastor of Hyde Park United Methodist, and the Reverend Dr. Melody Knowles, the Vice President of Academic Affairs and Associate Professor of Old Testament at Virginia Theological Seminary in Alexandria, Virginia. Melody's areas of research include how Israel's history is reworked in the Psalms, women's use of the Psalms, and ancient practices of religion. Melody also wrote the study notes for Chronicles in the Common English Study Bible. If you own a copy, you can dive deeper into the conversation that we have by reading Melody's notes and essays in your Bible. In this episode, we discuss the overall themes of the book of Chronicles, and we compare and contrast it with the books of Samuel and Kings that came before. A few asides at the beginning that may help you through this episode. While Chronicles is broken into 1st and 2nd Chronicles in our Bibles, the original text was simply one book, and scholars have taken to referring to the author of that book as the Chronicler. So you may hear that name come up occasionally as we refer to the author of the book of Chronicles as the Chronicler. Second, both last week and this week, we had substantive discussions about the Deuteronomistic history, or DTRH as it is abbreviated by scholars. The Deuteronomistic history is a theory that became popular in early 20th century biblical studies and was mostly conceived by Martin Note, a German scholar. The theory suggests that the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings are sharing a common literary source that a person or community in the exile put together a history explaining why the northern and southern kingdoms fell from grace and ended up banished to Babylon. While this was a prevailing theory for most of the 20th century, recently the theory has been questioned as being purely hypothetical and not reflective of how biblical texts would have functioned for their original audiences. If you missed last week's episode with Daniel Stulak, he presents a modern rebuttal to the Deuteronomistic history. And finally, some history. As we just finished reading in Kings, The united monarchy led by David and Solomon split in 931 BCE into the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. In 722 BCE, the Assyrians, led by Sargon II, overtake Israel. Many of the people in the northern kingdom are exiled to Assyria, and others flee to the southern kingdom. Then, in 586 BCE, the southern kingdom, Judah, falls to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Many of the people are exiled to Babylon, and Solomon's temple is destroyed. In 539 BCE, about 40 years later, the Persians conquer the Babylonians, and then in 538 BCE, King Cyrus of Persia issues an edict allowing the Jews to return to Israel. This return happens gradually over the next 20 years. The events recorded in Chronicles cover the span of this timeline. Now, on to the episode. Well, Melody, thank you for joining us. And uh, one of the questions that we want to lead with is why the book of Chronicles? Uh, Inevitably, uh, people asked me when we started this project, this will be great. We'll go through some of these great stories. But once we get through Kings, why do we have to read many of these stories over again when we get to Chronicles? And uh, I I think that's a fair question. What, What is so important about the book of Chronicles to you? That's an excellent question, McGray. And, um, I mean, you could say, why not the book of Chronicles, but uh, I'll take your, I'll take the premise. Yes. Um, <laughs> but because I, I get it. I mean, it is as a book, it is so having studied it for a long time. I, I'll agree that it can be really boring. Um, there's lots of lists and there's not a lot of dialogue and, you know, the content isn't, can, 
doesn't isn't always as exciting as one might wish. And then I think things are even made worse in the order in which we read, right? So usually mm. what happens is exactly you read through the books of Samuel and Kings, um, that larger corpus, the Deuteronomistic history, and you've got one version of how everything happened, and then you've got to get through the second reading of it. Um, and so you, you sort of wonder why. In the places where it repeats the Deuteronomistic history, it feels just repetitive and boring. And the places where it differs from that earlier text, it, it just sort of feels um, forced, biased, or ideological. Like there's, mm. like the author has an axe to grind. Mm-hmm. You know, why are they always focusing on this thing differently than the Deuteronomistic historians? But, <laughs> I mean, I still, I still do love maybe more of the project of the chronicler. That is, if you think about, you know, this is happening in the context of the post-exilic period. The people are rebuilding themselves after everything that they've known has been lost. And the chronicler says, you know, what's most needed here is a retelling of the past. Mm. And it's like this massive project, right? The text goes from Adam through the post-exilic period I mean, it's not like an, an incidental retelling. It's as if the author is saying, look, a key aspect of who we are is, this, is the story of our past. So we're going to retell the stories of God's presence with the people, the choice of David, the role of the king in the temple. So I like it for that. Like, I just think that the whole project's interesting. But then I also love it in that it tells me something that I'm, I may not have realized so easily about the earlier stories in Samuel and Kings. Um, in that it just as I kind of my first response is to say, oh, the chroniclers has an axe to grind. Mm-hmm. It's ideological. Right. It makes me realize if you read Chronicles first, you might say the exact same thing about the stories in Samuel and Kings. Hmm. So so that there's no one there's no non-ideological retelling. Right. So one's not somehow true, but but you get a sense that they're just they're retold for different purposes and they're going to emphasize different things. And it's no small point that you, that you mentioned here which is that Samuel and Kings were written in a in a very different context, mm-hmm. a different time frame in Israelite history which was what during the exile, but Chronicles was written after the exile where the worldview mm-hmm. uh changed dramatically and and that that's very important to keep in mind when we're trying to figure out why why these stories are so different yeah if you think about the nation's relationship to all the assumptions of the past Mm -hmm. so you know in the exile it wasn't clear how all of those assumptions would fit together Mm -hmm. so they were really Mm -hmm. sort of groping in the dark Mm -hmm. and when you get to the post-exilic period it wasn't as if everything was now available to them And, and by everything i just mean you know they're relation to the monarchy, the temple, and the law, you know, and and the city of Jerusalem, they still had to work through that. Now that they perhaps did have access to Jerusalem, what was Jerusalem going to be for them now that they had lived without a center Mm -hmm. for a generation? So, you know, so very different times, very different accesses to power and questions that the the nation was questioning together. I suppose an equivalent might be um, how would... An American historian view the, for example, the story of the Revolutionary War. If that historian were living in, for example, Civil War times or or Reconstruction, as opposed to a historian who's living much later, say, um, during during World War Two or or even within the last few decades, one's yeah. one's perspe- one's current perspective shapes the way they understand the origin stories. Yeah. It sounds like that's kind of what's happening here. 
Right. And, and that you sort of, you don't have, I'm just trying to talk about the relation of the origin story to the actual event itself, that they're all, they're all retellings. They're all reshapings of the known. It's not like one's deviating from the earlier. I mean, one is deviating from the earlier one, but it's not like the earlier one has a, a, a more authentic purchase on what really happened. Yeah. Right. Right. In some ways, I wonder whether like movies might also be a, an interesting parallel here. So you could do it with biblical movies, right? The the message of the Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille, is much different than Prince of Egypt yes. by DreamWorks. Yes. Mm. Or Little Women, right? The I mean, it's maybe not as dramatic, but the retellings of Little Women. I haven't seen the the newer version, but as I understand, there's there's just em- different emphases, and they're all accessing that same source text. Yes. Yeah. Jumping in here for the millennials, Hamilton is a great <laughs> example of retelling of American history, right? Exactly. I mean, emphasizing an immigrant at a time when immigrants oh. are a hot topic in America exactly. and retelling the story of our founding. Right. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great example too. Uh, and it's interesting if you take a look at the, the, the structure of the Jewish canon, um, as opposed oh. to uh, the Christian or at least the Protestant canon, the placement of the the books of chronic of the chronicles are different. Uh, Jewish canon mm-hmm. ends with chronicles, whereas uh, in the Christian canon it follows right after Kings. What what do you th- suppose is the significance of that? Well, this gets a little bit at our kind of our struggle with re- with chronicles feeling repetitive because it occurs right you know right after Kings, so inevitably it's going to feel somewhat like that. But with um, moving the Book of Chronicles to not only the end of the canon, but also within the Book of the Writings, you know, what's what's poetic about the Book of Chronicles? <laughs> um, how is history kind of only half spoken, like poetry is half spoken? So in terms of its um, where we find it in the Protestant um Catholic canon. But then you also think about what does it mean to end the canon with the book of Chronicles yes, right. versus Malachi. With Malachi, they're they're looking forward, right? But mm-hmm. in the book of Chronicles, what they're looking forward to, they're also looking forward, they're looking forward to the going up mm-hmm. to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a little counterintuitive because it feels like it doesn't quite end. But in some ways, there's a parallel to the end of the Torah with in, in Deuteronomy. So Moses is on the banks of the river, looking forward to what comes next. And, and it's only with that next generation, that next part of the book that Joshua enters in. Um, in some ways, that, that's parallel here. And, and we as the reader are almost standing on the banks of what comes next. Yeah. And we are imaged also almost as pilgrims, right, where we're on mm-hmm. the way. Our, our role really isn't to be solidified in the present, but to, to look forward to that next step. With the Jewish canning and ending with Chronicles, it's an anticipation of going home and rebuilding the temple. Mm-hmm. But with Christian canon ending the Old Testament with Malachi, it's an anticipation of the, the day of the Lord, which mm-hmm. certainly is an anticipation of the, the coming of, of Jesus, coming of the Messiah. They both end with anticipation, but for yeah. two very different things. Yeah, I mean, you could say that the book of Chronicles does does better in the Jewish canon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. as the end piece instead of just sort of lodged in the middle of all the historical narratives. If we're talking about that broad idea of kind of the ideology of Chronicles, we you were putting it in contrast to the ideology of Joshua Judges, Samuel, and Kings, which sort of is this comprehensive other history of mm-hmm. the Israelite people. Are there a few kind of theological touchstones that a layperson could kind of find that they could contrast between Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and what the work of the Chronicler is doing? 
Yeah, I mean, there is there's a question about, you know, what really is the Chronicler's project in relation to the Deuterministic history? That is, is it trying to replace the Deuterministic history? Mm-hmm. Or is it trying to stand alongside to maybe fill in some gaps or to say that, you know, the story's actually not done telling once you told it once? <laughs> Um, but but there are so you know what's the whole project in and of itself but then also if you do some of the comparison contrasting some of the stories um, you kind of see their different perspectives come into view now on the whole um, I mean they have a there's obviously a a true similarity they both care about the the works of the kings and they both think that God is um, you know basically fair but they do handle some stories so differently that you can kind of you can kind of see there um, what's significant to them. Well, a, a nice example to use is in the treatment of the king uh, Manassas mm. in um, Second Chronicles thirty-three. So this is, you know, Manasseh was the was the worst king par excellence in the Deuteronomistic history, and you know every king after Manasseh is compared. You know, he was worse than the king of Manasseh, or better than you know he's like the touchstone for for badness. Right. Right. <laughs> And there's a sense in which Manassas's um, guilt, his sin, almost sort of carried through after his death, so that ultimately in the in the Deuteronomistic history, it's Manassas who's 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 blamed for the exile mm. because of that sin. Uh, subsequent generation in, will now be cast into exile. The chronicle, I mean, the chronicler gets that sin matters, and um, it has to it, it will be punished. But for the Chronicle, there's more of a sense of it actually punishment will be inflicted on the on the one who caused it. There's not it doesn't sort of linger on for the generation. So when you look at the treatment of Manasseh, he's just as bad in, Chron- in Chronicles as he is in Kings. But he's punished. He goes into Babylon and then he prays mm. and asks forgiveness and God restores him back to the land. Mm. And then ultimately, when the people do go into exile, it's not because of Manasseh. It's because of their own sins. So, so it's, it's interesting in that you get the chronicler focusing on um, justice and punishment, but also forgiveness. And that punishment only is is usually just on the person who actually caused the who actually did the sin. Now, not all the time, but I think Manasseh really does the story of Manasseh really does pick up that emphasis in the Book of Chronicles. So, what are some other big themes in the Book of Chronicles that we should keep an eye out for? Yeah, to keep an eye out for because, I mean, you almost don't have to do that because it just kind of bangs you in the face every time you, you try to read it. So you're it. telling it's me the, the chronicler's not subtle? <laughs> well, there's subtleties to be found, but there's yeah. the major themes, he knows how to how to emphasize them. And the other one I would say, in addition to kind of the whole justice and forgiveness thing is, well, first of all, just the emphasis on worship in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. um, how that place is so significant and I think sometimes as Protestants, we were used to reading that kind of language as metaphorical, maybe, or symbolic. But for the chronicler, remember, the chronicler is in a time when, you know, they do have access to Jerusalem. But it seems as if, I mean, the city is still really poor, and it's nowhere near what it what it used to be. So there's a little bit of a of an inspiration of people to actually physically return to the city. Mm. And why is that? Because God has chosen that geographical area that is significant to God and therefore must be significant to God's people. So the both, both worship, worship in Chronicles is really significant. And it's, 
and that's sort of all the all the chapters dealing with David setting up the setting up the temple and making sure that everything's in place. You know, I mean, that why why that's important is because worship's really important. And then the emphasis on the on worship in Jerusalem. Yeah, and it seems like the treatment of David and his setting up of worship is also um, shaped quite differently by the chronicler than we see mm-hmm. in DTRH. I was just reading through First Samuel today for something, and it's just crazy how it, I didn't realize that David doesn't consolidate the kingdoms all at once. When he when he comes in in the in the uh, in Samuel or in DTRH right in yeah. Samuel exactly yeah he's in it's two separate movements and mm-hmm. I just always assume oh well, he's the king of you know he's the king of Israel he just you know he does it he just gets it all at once but in Chronicles right there's not that mm-hmm. there's not that break it's all of exactly. Israel right he comes in and he leads the whole community yeah that's I think another theme of the book of Chronicles what's the ideal presentation of humanity. It's the north and the southern tribes together mm. worshiping God in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. When you compare the stories, you'll notice that the, sto- that the stories about the northern kingdoms kind of go away and mm. that, that will be edited out in the book of Chronicles, except when they come together in worship. Mm. So the north, you know, as, as, a, as the nation that has, has sinned, has gone away from the promise of God to Jerusalem, they're not sort of presented by the chronicler as vigorously as they are in the book of um, Samuel and Kings. But they still matter to, to the chronicler. And this would be one of the chronicler's themes as well, that ideally the north and the south are together. And that's where you get David being king of both at the same time. They're both present there for his coronation. That's such a subtle change of perspective that happens in just yeah. uh, you know just a period of being in the exile versus post-exilic. Because in the exile, right, they're wrestling with, oh my gosh, how did we get here? What happened? Obviously, it was someone's fault. And they're so quick to cast dispersions. And the North is out of the picture during the exile. I mean, they've been been scattered everywhere by... Well, they were the first Mm -hmm. ones to get it wrong. That's right. And, you know, and then get wiped out. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, at least that's how it comes across when I read DTRH, is it's like, Mm -hmm. hey, the North is, you know, pretty bad. But yeah, it seems like Chronicler's like, no, let's all get along. Let's all be family. Yeah, well, I mean, they're still bad. <laughs> and and they, they get, so that's why they kind of get wiped out of history when they're not doing what they should be doing. But there's an expansiveness there, too, that is, the nation isn't truly itself unless the North and the South are both together. It's a privileging of the city of Jerusalem. That is, it's the city that defines the nation. When they're together in Jerusalem in worship of God, the North has to ultimately realize the significance of Jerusalem. And and liturgically speaking, it's a high vision of worship as well. Yeah. That that in the context of worship, uh, we can set aside our differences because we have the same God that we worship and offer the fullness of who we are, which is bigger than our differences. I think that's an important message. Yeah, um, the significance of worship. There's a political aspect of worship. Mm. I mean, for I mean that in that um, it matters not just in an individual way. Again, maybe the the relation of how Protestants typically <laughs> um, approach this subject uh, is significant. That is, so I, I don't know if I'm unusual or usual, but you know, my experience of a, of a worship day, say on a Sunday, is my concerns about yes. getting to a certain place yes. and, and my experience, whether I enjoyed it or not. But here it's more... Um, First of all, it, it really matters. You know, the fact that maybe I want to sleep in on a Sunday morning is not really an option. Yes, for the yes. It really matters, and, it's, and it should be joyful. I mean, the Conkler loves 
worship and, and emphasizes the music and the, the preparation and the joy that one encounters in worship. So it's not boring or deadly, but, but really it's, it's life-giving. And then it also matters who's worshiping together. So it can't just be one individual showing up at the right place at the right time. It, ideally, it's, it's the whole kingdom united in worship facing Jerusalem. Thanks so much for joining us this week. We'll be back next week with part two of our interview with Melody discussing specific texts that play out the themes of Chronicles. In the meantime, if you've missed any of our prior episodes, now is a great time to go back and listen to a few of them. And if you know anyone with some free time looking to take up a hobby, suggest this podcast to them. It's a great way to gain confidence in reading and understanding the Bible. You can find out more about Hyde Park United Methodist and the Bible Project 2020 at BibleProject2020.com. You can also join us Sunday mornings at 9.30 and 11 a.m. for online worship at hydeparkumc.org forward slash live. And be sure to rate and review the podcast in Apple Podcasts. McGray DeVega produced this episode. I'm Matt Hotho. See you next week.